Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England and to 2023, another year of fun and laughter ahead. This is episode 361, originally called Balancing the Books, but I was told to call it Charles in Charge. So Charles in Charge it is. Something to do with having an episode called Charles at Home and then Charles Abroad. Apparently the next one needed to be Charles in Charge. I do not know why. Anyway, I am conscious of quite possibly making a narrative mistake to start off the year. Over the next couple of episodes, I am going to tell you the story of a man known for many generations as the Great Patriot. Although we've largely forgotten him now, unless you go to a specific school or are a Civil Wars nut. I know this because I did a seriously scientific piece of research, otherwise known as a poll on Twitter, where I learned that less than 18% of people know who he was. And also, of course, I needed to talk about the great cause into which he was launched, the imposition by the king of ship money, and therefore starting his road to stardom that would be confirmed by his untimely death on Chalgrove Field. So, I should really wax lyrical about this hero as a beacon of political liberty now, right now. But everything, good people, everything in its place. First of all, this time, we need to talk about all the other ways that Charles approached the greatest challenge of his personal rule, his bank balance, or lack of it. Money. I was told by a very dour cleaner in my halls of residence at St Andrews University many moons ago, money is the root of all evil. I nodded furiously and dutifully in agreement, of course, 
while thinking that in that case I could do a little bit more evil in my life. But I did not reveal my secret thoughts. I'm sure she was right. Now, I think you are aware that the old idea of a king living of their own was a concept much beloved of the gentry that populated the English Parliament. And to be honest, one of the less impressive things about the English Parliament was their blindness to the essential issue that English kings, while they might seem rich to you and I, were very poor in European terms and could not run a modern state on the income from the royal estates alone, or even an early modern state. I have said this before, but one of the very first things that will result from both the Scottish and the English revolutions is that the people will be mulked of a far greater proportion of their hard-earned spondulicays than Charles would have dreamed of being able to mulked. Now, the monarchs recently had not done themselves any favours, it has to be said, and were rather encouraging the victim-blaming that was going on. James I had not proven himself competent to manage a piggy bank responsibly, let alone a country. And Charles had gaily launched inappropriate wars at the drop of Buckingham's beplumed hat. In the distant memory, meanwhile, was good old Queen Bess, the meanest mouse-ship monarch who had seemed to manage a reign of fondly remembered glory all on a piece of string, some drawing pins and a half-used tube of glue. Nonetheless, Conrad Russell argues that one of the reasons for the success of the revolution and Charles's defeat can be laid at the door of money. The root of all evil, you see. If only he'd had enough money to repress his people, far fewer people would have died. So, when Charles turned away in despair from a parliament that he felt really ought to have been consigned to the naughty step for the foreseeable future, the reason that all those foreign ambassadors wrote off England as a force in European affairs was because even they recognised that warfare cost rivers of money, waterfalls, cascades, blizzards of the folding stuff. And not only was England relatively small and puny, it was rubbish at raising money. One essential difference between England and Habsburg Spain was the absence of prerogative taxes, just in case you thought the English were oppressed. In Spain, Philip IV and his ministers had access to taxes like the Milliones, a tax on food which was supposedly voted by the Cortes, but in practice was becoming automatic, and the Cesa, or should that be Cesa? I don't really know. Anyway, it was a land tax that had once been a local tax, but had been transferred to the crown centrally in the 14th century. So when deciding on his next tax rate, Philip IV could simply chuck a couple of arrows at his dartboard, see what the number came up, and away he went. I mean, it was a bit more complicated than that, obviously, but you know what I'm saying to you. Louis XIII in France, meanwhile, had prerogative taxes coming out of his ears. The tie had been set by the Estates General originally, but the power had been half-inched by the Crown and the Estates General had been suspended in 1484. Now, the Estates General made a comeback and limped on for a bit until 1614 and then disappeared until the Revolution, of course, when it was called for purely advisory reasons. A bit like Brexit, apparently. Louis was also able to enforce payment of the regular gabelle, a percentage imposition on salt, an absolutely critical component of life. I'm not pretending it was easy. The gabelle was a riot of different rates set by local custom, which led to blizzards of popular unrest and galloping smuggling, since the rates applied to different regions varied wildly. But nonetheless... Central government 
did not need to get approval to levy or enforce the tax. I understand salt tax was traditional around the world, including in India, something the British Empire was to enjoy exploiting with similar levels of unpopularity. But that's for a future episode. Should I be alive that far in the future, or indeed, should you lot be alive that far away? Maybe I should just move on now. Also, I might mention that prerogative taxes gave Habsburg and Bourbon another critical element of absolutism their poor relations in England did not have available to them. A paid set of public servants loyal only to them, like the Intendant from France, to go and collect all this stuff, and a standing army of professional soldiers to make sure you paid up or they send the boys round, or indeed billet them on you, as the Huguenots were to find out. So Charles had a challenge on his hands. He was to get to grips with said challenge by addressing the demand side and the supply side. That's me trying to sound like an economist. How'd I do? Now, we've dealt with the demand side last time. Charles had made peace. So the call on his cash was much reduced. Tick. The thing about politics and government, of course, is that things happen which will demand money. Events, dear boy, events. But for the moment, a tourniquet had been twisted firmly to stop the immediate flow of blood. So, supply side then. And it is worth asking Richard Weston to come to the front of the stage at this point, since, as Lord Treasurer, sorting out the King's money problems would be his job, along with his Chancellor of the Exchequer, Francis Cottington. Weston was already well trusted by Charles, resolutely opposed as he was to further parliaments, veering towards Catholicism and pro-Spanish. And Weston had sat already at the feet of the master, the Earl of Middlesex, who had achieved great things with a much more difficult master with the incontinent James I, before Buckingham had brought him down. Now it was Weston's chance with his son, and until 1635, when he croaked, he would be Charles's right-hand man. But never a favourite on the model of a Buckingham, it must be said. Charles's favourite's phase was, to his credit, well behind him. Now, the challenge was significant, and make no mistake, royal debt stood at two million quid, which was about three times the annual income in peacetime, which stood at around £600,000. At the start of the personal rule also, the economic bones were not falling well for the forecasters. In 1629 and 1630, there were years of dearth. There was unemployment in the cloth trade, rioting, as we have mentioned a couple of episodes ago, in London, the South East and the West Country. The 1629 harvest was uninspiring, but that of 1630 was thoroughly awful. The price of wheat rose from 38 shillings in 1629 to 54 shillings in 1630. Now, I'm not sure how aware you are of the value of the shilling in your pocket. But all you need to register is that if any staple food goes up in cost by 40%, there's likely to be trouble. Also, none of the 1630s harvests were any good, and 1638-9 would see a widespread plague into the bargain. Famines are behind the English, but dearth is not. Furthermore, income from crown lands was not good, primarily because there were very few of them left, though I'm forced to admit that I cannot find a figure for exactly how much revenue specifically the crown lands yielded. Although, in the first ten years of his reign, Charles raised £640,000 from sale of crown lands, which might help pay the bills in the short term, but was robbing the future, of course. 
well, the most obvious source of income were the customs, tonnage and poundage, and the extra impositions that had been made by James I. Of course, these were not in the king's gift, because Parliament had never granted them, as was their due, and the impositions had been argued back and forth ever since that first one was levied, so presumably that avenue was closed because Charles deeply respected the traditional rights of Parliament over his own. Not. I mean, obviously not. Without the customs dues, the personal rule would have been dead in the water, and anyway, as far as Charles was concerned, they were required as a matter of state, and the king was the only one capable of deciding what determined matters of state, so he thought about it and thought, hmm, OK, I think this one qualifies as a matter of state. Let's collect it then. Although there was some initial resistance to the customs, the collection of customs throughout the personal rule was basically something of a triumph for Charles and Weston. Initially, economic problems depressed revenue, but then came a peace dividend. England had less war, and that helped trade. Everyone else had more war, and that meant that English merchants managed to capture the carrying trade while other countries fought, mainly the Dutch, but from 1635 also from the French, when France decided they'd had enough of watching the Habsburgs give everyone a kicking and entered the Thirty Years' War, stage left with La Gloire and Marianne at the fore. So, although the Thirty Years' War depressed trade, and the cloth trade in particular, horribly, at least the English were carrying more of it. So in 1635, Charles introduced a new book of rates as well, raising the customs dues on various products. The result was that customs started at £270,000 a year and then went to £358,000 a year in 1635 and a whopping 484000 by 1640. So that's a pretty penny then. With all the following financial secret plans and clever tricks, we're going to have to apply the revolution test, of course, because at the end of the personal rule, we're going to have to answer a fundamental question. Was England a steaming mass of seething resentment and indignation, just ready to burst into the fire of revolution? Or were the Clarendon types correct? Everything was not only fine, but also dandy, until some troublemakers in Parliament stirred things up. You might think that continuing to gather customs dues in the face of parliamentary rights would have been most incendiary. But as you can see from the figures, that doesn't really seem to be the case. I mean, no one wants to pay taxes, but customs dues had been a fact of life for, like, ever. And there's precious little sign of refusals to pay or boycotts in favour of the rights of Parliament. Let me not give the impression that everyone was happy with it. The way customs dues were collected raised the heat quite a lot too. The way to raise those customs dues was to use farmers. Not people with bits of hay sticking out of their hair, given to saying, ah, pullovers with holes in their elbows and a faint odour of pigs, but slick city types with the latest mobile fast cars and loose boyfriends. Basically, the government went to the powerful big merchants of the merchant community and sold them a patch within which they could collect the customs dues or harvest them, you might say, sticking to the farming idiom. They might say, well, look, this patch will cost you 50 grand up front. The farmer would pay up, and the government was well chuffed because they had money in pocket, 
another schlep of collecting the money or the risk of having a shortfall. Certainty is always nice in budgeting. The fly, though, the fly in the ointment, was that the farmer wasn't doing this for the good of their soul or because of their love of the king. Their calculation was they could turn a profit. They could bring in more than 50,000, which made them super sharp-eyed in collecting every drop of possible dew from their victims. I mean, clients. This did not make the relationship any easier. This approach was, incidentally, a common technique throughout Europe, even in a centralised place like France, where they had paid government intendants in each region. Whereas in England, of course, you relied on the unpaid gentry and the JPs to monitor how things were going. This meant there was a fairly small group of super big merchants and financial wizards who were doing very well, thank you very much, from the government, as opposed to the mass of mid-level merchants for whom the government was nothing more than a bad credit risk that came looking for loans on occasion. The difference between the two groups was made even more stark by the practice of monopolies. You have heard all the fuss about monopolies before, of course, in Elizabeth's reign and James's reign, when Parliament kicked up a stink about those favoured special people making them pay fees for a monopoly they'd just bought from the government. Once again, the big boys had to buy these monopolies, which went to the highest bidder, and they weren't going to turn a profit by offering deep discounts, but by screwing purchasers for every additional penny. Purchasers, of course, who couldn't go anywhere else for what they needed, because, yep, that's the nature of a monopoly. Now, none of this was legal anymore at all, because in 1624, good old Parliament had passed the Statute of Monopolies, which, incidentally, is considered to be the start of patent law in England. Obviously a great question for your pub quiz. Let me just tell you about patents for a moment. Basically, monopolies were based on letters patent from the king. The word comes from the Latin for open, unobscured, because anyone could see the letter to check the legality of it. Sorry for mentioning that. I suppose it's patently obvious. Arf, and if you will, arf. I'll be here all week. Anyway, rubbish jokes aside, the statute of monopolies banned individuals from being given letters patent unless the product or service involved was demonstrably a novelty, like a new invention. You could no longer supposedly give Lord Haw-Haw a patent, which meant every Tom, Dick and Harriet had to buy leather from them, even patent leather, off once more, because leather was nothing new. Now, if they'd invented polyester... Then he could have a patent. So, problem sorted by Parliament in 1624, right? Wrong, and I say again, not. Because in their effort to raise money, Weston and Charles looked for the loophole and dash it all they found it. Firstly, but dangerously, if anyone argued with the award of a monopoly, Charles had it referred straight away to the prerogative courts, Star Chamber, Chancery, which could be very easily and very heavily influenced by the king. But more straightforwardly, the statute of monopolies referred to individuals. So if the favoured merchant or financier set up a little corporation, why, no problem. Of course you can have a patent of monopoly. Of course you can. Not mentioned in the 1624 statute, so why shouldn't we? Result? Once more, the number of patents ballooned. For the selling of wine, playing cards, dice, spectacles, pipes, hat bands, I mean, the list goes on. 
There was one particularly unpopular one by a corporation set up by folks with known Catholic affiliations given a monopoly to manufacture soap, which turned out not only to be very expensive but also rubbish. There was a London washerwoman who complained that the papist soap, as she called it, didn't clean things and burned her hands. And to be fair, a judge who then looked at it agreed the soap was so bad it could not be useful, which doesn't make a good advertising jingle. Eager not to lose the money from the monopoly, though, the government then organised one of those public product trials. I am amazed at this. It sounds so thoroughly modern, you know, like a blind competition between Coke and Pepsi, where the poor members of the public can agree they both taste like crap. Pass me the dandelion and burdock. No, like a personal advert against another leading washing powder. Anyway, they had a competition, and hey presto, it was discovered that the new soap, which just coincidentally earned the government £20,000 a year, produced clothes as white and much sweeter. When people complained, they might be slammed in jail. When 16 manufacturers complained about this hideous monopoly, since they'd been doing absolutely fine with the old soap before, and no one's hands got burned, the Attorney General brought a government action against them and fined the lot of them for being moaning minis. Now this particular clearly iniquitous monopoly was brought to an end in 1637, and I would like to tell you that the good sense and fairness won out over tyranny in the minds of the king's loyal ministers. But not a bit of it. The monopoly came to an end because the old soap makers club together formed a new corporation and outbid the new guy, which meant Charles now scooped up 30,000 quid a year. I mean, it's not good, is it? But it all added up to Weston and Co. To the customs dues was now added £100,000 a year from monopolies. And to be fair, monopolies were not always granted just to make a bob or two. Well, they might have been, but often it was to raise money while doing good. Like Tommy Lehrer's old dope peddler, doing well by doing good. Encouraging innovation sort of thing. Now that brings us to another source of angst and pain, the Fenlands of Eastern England. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. England. The Fens are a very unique part of England. I don't want to bore you with holiday snaps and all, but when I were a lad, we'd drive across the fens to get to the North Norfolk coast so that the north wind could strip the skin from our bones before we came home to landlocked Leicestershire to recover. It is as flat as a pancake, dissected by arrow-straight canals, ditches and unnaturally straight rivers. The fields are vast and square and regular, the soil black and fertile. It is a landscape that would have looked utterly different to the way it looks now. This was where Harrowwood hid among the reeds way back when. Swamps and marshes, where Ely was genuinely an island. 
I would love to see the Fenlands as they once had been. It must have been a wildlife paradise. Anyway, the life of the people who lived there was highly adapted to their landscape, of course. There was precious little arable land. There was lots of common land where locals could supplement their diets and incomes. So they lived by hunting wildfowl, cutting reeds, fishing and trapping, and had developed all the skills and knowledge needed to live in that landscape, such as using stilts to move around. But from the late 16th century, their landscape and consequently their lives would be transformed. The experience of the Low Countries demonstrated how, through drainage schemes, the marshes could be drained and the fertile soil formed from eons of mud and dead stuff could be exposed and used for tillage, which does sound like a wizard idea, fair enough. It was often the Dutch who would be brought over to lead projects. In 1626, for example, Charles commissioned Cornelius Vermoyden to undertake work in the Isle of Axholm, and he brought many Dutch workmen to help him. These were big projects, so they couldn't just be carried out by locals or individual farmers making gradual improvements on a human scale. Set of pay for all the work required, the digging of dikes, the digging of... dikes? Rubbish word. A contronym, I understand now, though. The straightening of rivers and all that. Big companies called adventurers were put together with contracts led by major landowners like the Earl of Bedford. The deal was often that the adventurers, in return for all their work and investment, would get a portion of the improved land. The Crown would, of course, get paid for the rights to do the work. The landowner might lose some land, but what the heck? Now they'd have much improved land which was suitable for tillage, and in the end, they'd make a bundle. So, it's a win-win situation. Everyone's happy. Well, no, of course. Someone always has to pay the price, and guess who that would be? Let me think now. Oh yes, that would be the ordinary folk, making their living in ways that may not have changed very much since pre-Roman times, making use of common land to do their fishing, cattle grazing, peat cutting. Now the money to the world didn't think a lot of these folk and the way they lived and their ancient ways. And to be fair, the Fenlanders didn't think much right back at them. The antiquarian William Camden wrote of them as a kind of people, according to the nature of the place where they dwell, rude, uncivil, and envious to all others whom they call upland men. Yet another described them as a thriftless race whose only strong passion was a love of freedom. Which sounds rather romantic. Their common rights really, really complicated the situation. So often they were just rolled over. Oh well, can't deal with that. Let's just ignore it. Courts called Courts of the Sewers were put together, which contrived to fine any community it deemed was hurtfully surrounded by marshland, taxing them for allowing such a situation to occur, then declaring the unpayable tax when it inevitably fell into arrears and confiscating the land. Not every court was prepared to play ball in this way, but many did. The net result of most of these projects, even if relatively sensitively done, was that the ordinary inhabitants often ended up with much less land, since it went to the adventurers' companies, and lost the common rights on which they depended. So, there were riots and there was sabotage. The Fen Tigers became known for smashing dikes, filling in the other kind of dike and destroying channels. 
But the aim of Fenland projects was improvement, right enough, and in the end, wonderful agricultural land was revealed. But a way of life was destroyed in the process, and many lives ruined. So, when the civil war began to kick off, many of the noblemen and kings who had encouraged the projects were not popular with the people around. It is unsurprising how fervent Fenland folk would be for the cause of Parliament. It also gives us a chance to have a bit of a peek at one Oliver Cromwell, a small landowner living in Ely at this time. In 1637, the Earl of Bedford was behind a massive project in his neck of the woods, the Great Levels. The story goes like this, that it was Cromwell who agreed to fight the good fight on behalf of the commoners threatened by this big development. He swore to tie the adventurous company up in a legal case mess and promised to stop any work from happening for five years at least. This is sort of an event which in a muddled way made it into the film Cromwell, trying to prevent an improvement made by the Earl of Manchester, which he did, but that was all much later in 1641. So, this has been taken as evidence of Cromwell's famed identification with the common man, with a sense of the traditional social contract and social justice. His detractors certainly didn't like it at the time. One of them described Cromwell as especially made choice of by those ever endeavouring the undermining of regal authority. And later his enemies were to refer to him as the Lord of the Fens. It was not a compliment. It was ridicule. Now, as is the way of these things, it is no longer fashionable to imagine great men who have become protector of the realm and supposedly a tyrant and a man responsible at very least for many deaths in Ireland to be seen as down with the ordinary folks and in possession of a social contract. There is no doubt that later in his career, Cromwell would support drainage projects, though he also insisted that a fair deal be arrived at for the commoners displaced by them. So historians have worked a way to identify holes in the story. There is, for example, only one source for much of it. So the most positive story most historians appear to be able to live with now is one where Cromwell did indeed lead the project and lead legal resistance, but as part of a consortium of local worthers, including the likes of the Bishop of Ely. Still, Cromwell surely remains, even then, on the side of the oppressed. One more word on the Fens. It's a bit of a theme, I think, about Charles, that it's not necessarily what he did, but why or how he did it. He just wasn't too careful about whom he selected for these projects and how they then behaved, as long as the money and improvement followed. In Lincolnshire, then, a project was brought forward by one Anthony Thomas. In 1629, the local court of sewers actually objected to the project on account of the fact that the adventurer's company was both corrupt and incompetent. Now, one of them might have been acceptable, but two was frankly careless. So, the jury of the sewers rejected Thomas's scheme. Dum-dum-dum! So justice could be done. But Charles simply ordered the project to go ahead anyway, by his own authority. The letter he sent, marked with his signet, said, We be constrained to interpose our regal power and prerogative, to force forward and adverse men to give way to that which is for the public good. So much for due process. For Charles, the law must bend to the royal will. So much also 
for good government because the commissioners refused nonetheless to go ahead. And so he sacked them and had them replaced with yes-men who would. When Thomas claimed the project was finished, Charles gave him 24,000 acres of land. Then two years later it turned out that, in line with Thomas's incompetence, the project wasn't actually finished and was in fact a mess. Charles got to find out because the local inhabitants objected and raised petitions for redress. So obviously, fired and warned of the truth by the people for whom he believed himself a father, Charles went into punishment mode. But actually the people he punished were not the wrongdoers like Thomas. The people he punished were his children, the local inhabitants who had objected. This is what you call the exercise of arbitrary power and the reality that fathers can be tyrants too. By the time we get to the subject of selling monopolies, I don't know about you, but I'm starting to get an image of Charles, Treasurer Weston and Chancellor of the Exchequer Cottington, digging around desperately behind the back of the sofa for a few mouldy pennies. Because this sort of thing does not sound like the structured, reliable income, the likes of which we are used to governments having. Well, of course, things were different back then, but I think the metaphor has some relevance. The structured income should have been coming from Parliament. In order to make ends meet, rather than trying to impose modern direct taxes, such as existed in France and Spain, Charles the Traditionalist went back to work and sweat his medieval rights. There's a good reason for that. He could prove that, even if antiquated and covered in dust, they were legit. And because imposing direct taxes could lead to civil war, or at least a lot of public fury. And to be fair to Charles, it's vanishingly unlikely he even considered a civil war being worth it at this stage. So, what else was down the back of the sofa then? Well, do you remember, ages ago, Middle Ages time, we talked about how a law was passed requiring knights to come forward and be knighted, and therefore to own up to their military and political obligations, or at, or at least they would be required to pay a fine if they didn't. We did talk about it, can't remember when, but cross my heart and hope to die, we did. Over a hundred years since it was last used, though. Distraint of knighthood, it was called, and Charles now revived distraint of knighthood. If you hadn't come forward to be knighted and you had an income of 40 quid or more, then you'd need to cough up a fine. And let me tell you, 40 quid in Charles's reign was worth a lot less than it had been in Henry VII's reign, and so there were a lot more people who qualified. In 1630, special commissioners were sent round rattling the collecting tin, and 9,000 landowners were caught up by it. Yes, 9,000. In five years, they found 173,000 quid that way. People paid up because it was clearly legal, but there was a blizzard of complaints and claims for exemptions, and people grumbled. Legal, but not fair somehow. Next, there were forest rights. The royal forest was pretty insignificant by this time. What there was had largely been sold off by James I and enclosed by the landowners that bought them, very often diddling ordinary people, as per normal, out of their rights of common land. Where have you heard that before, then? As a result, there were multiple enclosure riots between 1626 and 1632, particularly in Wiltshire and the Forest of Dean. And then, cover me with honey and call me supper, Charles decided to fine everyone who had transgressed forest laws, setting the extent of royal forest 
as though it were still the Middle Ages. So people were fined when they didn't even know they lived in something that had ever been called a royal forest. I mean, it's a real stretch. And in the Middle Ages, the royal forest at its greatest extent had covered up to about a third of England. But despite the level of irritation, discombobulation and open-jawed disbelief that it caused, we are talking the law of diminishing returns here. This particular outrage raised only £80,000 in return for the burning of a good deal of political capital and goodwill. More medieval and feudal rights then were to follow. Remember wardship and how much we used to talk about that? At the start of the reign, it raised £45,000 a year. By the end, 84000 It has to be said that Robert Cecil had tried very hard to do a deal with Parliament to bring these antiquated feudal incidents to an end in return for a regular assured income. If you remember his great contract, both James and Parliament were to blame for failing to make that work. To an extent, the gentry of England were now eating the pudding they themselves had baked back then. And then on top of all that, another feudal Jew we used to talk about, purveyance, that was applied widely. People had always hated purveyance, which was the right of the royal household to requisition the goods they wanted from people and then pay what they chose for it, normally pants. None of these things then individually quite had what it took to induce rebellion. They were each relatively small and dispersed so that it was difficult to get angry enough to man the barricades or big enough for people to get together. There were without doubt complaints and anger, but nothing quite to focus on. Nor were these impositions enough, though, to provide a long-term future for financing English government. And it wasn't just the Privy Council who knew it full well. The Venetian ambassador didn't mention sofas, but he did say that all these fines were good for once only, and states are not maintained by such devices. OK, so something more substantial was needed. Everyone was agreed. And so something more substantial we shall have, which we will talk about next time. And up to the Oki of history will step a man whose reputation remains unvarnished by the later history of the civil wars, probably partly because he had the good sense to die early. In 1637, it was this man whose stand gave a voice first of all and a focus to protest. When in 1637, a refusenik, he stood firm against the largest of the king's money-raising ventures, ship money. You might know the name of this chap, especially if you come from the Aylesbury area, and if you do, I grant you a letter patent to feel smug, though obviously no one has the power to grant a monopoly of smugness. Next time, though, I will, of course, reveal his name and we won't be able to talk about shoes and sealing wax or indeed cabbages, but we will be able to talk about ships and kings. Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you for your comments and all. Thank you to my members especially for their support. And good luck, all of you, for 2023.